0: My name is Adam Bowers. I'm the senior pastor at First Free Church, and I am really excited because this morning we are launching into a new series called Because we wanted to. I don't know. We just felt like launching a new series. I'm sorry. It's a terrible, terrible joke. But I am very excited about this series because I think this is going to be a wonderful follow up to what we did in the Undivided series. I really enjoyed going through that and it's led to many, many great conversations as a church. And so today we're going to launch into a series called Why? Why do we do the things that we do? You know, one of the things that I've struggled with over the years is knowing when to hold on to something and when to let go. Does anybody else struggle with anything like that here? When do I hold on to something? When do I let it go? So here's an example for you, and this is just me. This may not be right for you. This is my journey. You don't have to follow this, but something that I struggled with years ago was whether or not to finally make the leap from paper books to digital books. I had lots and lots of paper books. But I started to find that when I wanted to look something up and I wanted to reference stuff, and of course in my line of work, I do an awful lot of study and research, it was becoming more and more cumbersome to flip through this book, hundreds of pages, where did I find that thing again? Where was that? Oh No, not that one. Try this one over here. Where was it? No, flip through hundreds of pages, go through 10 books, trying to find something. When I could just go to some software on my computer type in a few words, and in seconds, boom, there's exactly what I was looking for. And so what I realized was my physical book collection and the hundreds of books that I had over here were no longer accomplishing the purpose that I had for them as well as my digital books. And I loved the fact that I could start a book on my computer and keep going on my phone or my tablet, and it just kind of went with me everywhere. If I needed to travel, go on a plane, I was literally bringing hundreds of books with me in a little device, you know? And so I made that switch because the paper books that I had many, many of were no longer accomplishing their purpose as well as the digital books did. What to hold on to and what to let go of or what to change. Here's another example. Does anyone know what this is? This is an old, and by old I mean like 15 years old, maybe 20, computer modem that you plug your cable into and it gives you internet. Do you know why I have this old modem still? Yeah, neither does my wife. I found this thing last night and went, why do I still have this? This is an old, I think it's a Doxis 1 modem. Now we're up to Doxus 3 or something like that. And so I've got a new modem now. I've had it for a long time. I don't use this anymore. And yet for some reason, this thing is still here. Because some of us have a hard time letting go of things because, well, there might be some time when I'm going to need that again. How many of you have a junk drawer? Yeah, go ahead, admit it. You pull it out. You just throw something in. There's all kinds of stuff. How many of you have graduated to level two and you have a junk box? Anybody? (laughs) Level two junk box. Okay, level three, the closet. Anybody have a level three junk closet? Oh, I see those hands. I will pray for you. Pray for you. And you've got all kinds of spare parts that you have tossed in there every time you find something. It's just lying around. You're like, what does this go to? I don't know. Well, we better keep it in case we need it sometime. And you throw it in the the junk closet. And then you come back to it, and later you kind of open it, and it falls down, and you pick stuff up. And what is this stuff for? I don't know. It's been in there for 10, 15 years now. Should we get rid of it? No, we might find what it goes to someday and go back in. (laughs) We have a hard time letting things go sometimes. And what it should lead us to do is ask this question, why? Why do I still have that thing? Why do I still do things the way I do? What's the purpose for the things that we do? And throughout the history of the world, some things keep changing and some things don't change. Time brings change. Culture brings change. Technology, of course, brings change. Wisdom and knowledge bring change. Anytime we find a new way to do something, it results in change, if there's a new and better way to do it. Some things need to change to better accomplish their purpose. And some things should never change. So here's the question. How do we know what should change and what should not? Let me give you an example from the history of communication. Back in the days of Socrates, oral communication reigned supreme. And when you were taught, you were taught through an oral lecture. There were no textbooks Yes, there was reading and writing, of course, but it was not commonly used, and it's not how most people learned what they were taught. They were taught through oral lecture. And writing and reading were becoming more popular, and Socrates actually was against this. He said that reading and writing would make people foolish, even though it made them appear to be wise. Isn't that interesting? He said that it would ruin people's relationships, because instead of having to talk to someone to gain knowledge, you could just go read it. On a piece of paper. But of course today we prize reading as incredibly important. It's a necessary skill developing critical thinking and intellect and we gain so much wisdom from reading. Now the only reason we even know what Socrates said about reading and writing is because his students wrote it down for us. He didn't write. He didn't write it for us. If his students hadn't written it down we would never know that he opposed reading and writing for most people. Then there's this guy, Johannes Gutenberg. He developed a printing press and had fierce opposition. They said that the printing press would make monks lazy because all they really had to do was to copy the scriptures by hand. If they didn't have to do that anymore, they were just going to be lazy sitting around all day. The printing press was called a danger to their souls. One man wrote, He who ceases from zeal for writing... Because of printing, is no true lover of the scriptures. And a monk told Gutenberg the word of God needs to be interpreted by the priests, not spread around like dung. Some people who use printing presses in this day were actually arrested and accused of witchcraft and killed because of their magic ability to reproduce words on a page. But of course, the printing press was an incredible invention that brought reading and writing to the masses like nothing ever before. And before long, the primary use for printing presses was by monasteries producing copies of God's Word and spiritual literature to distribute to thousands and thousands of people. In fact, many of the people who opposed the printing press eventually had their works converted into type and mass produced and distributed around. It was such a useful invention. When newspapers grew in popularity, many people warned against the evils of getting your news from a piece of paper. They thought that it would cause social isolation since people could now get their news from a page instead of from a person. One of the leading causes of madness, get this, a leading cause of madness was by the medical community considered to be excessive reading and study. Any students here agree with that? Anybody? I felt that way sometimes. Sometimes. Of course, newspapers have played a critical role in our development, our, our transparency, our ability to know what's going on shortly after events occur. When the first continental, uh, transcontinental telegraph line was built, it put the Pony Express out of work, out of business in two days. Hundreds of people lost their jobs. But the telegram reduced cross-country communication from a matter of weeks to a matter of minutes. When telephones became popular, people claimed it would make people lazy. It would replace most in-person conversation with phone calls. They were worried that you wouldn't invite anybody over to your house anymore to talk because you could just call them up and talk to them on the phone. We would all just be stuck in our houses from now on communicating over wires. And so they warned against the dangers of the telephone. Of course, the telephone has radically transformed the way we communicate. And generally, for the better, I would say it's saved countless lives. Of course, now we, we have them wirelessly. We can call people and talk to them, and it's, it's a wonderful thing in, in many ways. When radio came on the scene, people claimed that it would keep children from reading, and so you shouldn't listen to the radio. You shouldn't even have them in your house because it'll keep your kids from reading, because reading is good now. And Newspapers warned about radios and they thought that it was going to damage their business. The radio news meant you could get your news instantly, so why would you ever, and you could listen to it, why would you read a a paper anymore? And So they actually planted fake news stories in their papers to discredit the radio news. How many of you have heard of the War of the Worlds broadcast? The one that went out and caused all that mass chaos because people were rioting in the streets and concerned that the Martians were coming and invading us? Did you know that none of that chaos ever actually happened? There is no documented case of any real chaos. They were fake stories planted in newspapers to try to discredit radio and make people afraid of the radio. Of course, radio stations then were afraid of TV and thought that it was going to kill their business. And not long ago, when email was becoming popular, news outlets ran a story claiming that excessive emailing was more dangerous to your IQ than smoking pot. (laughs) Now, it may be true. I don't know. But these kinds of tactics have been used again and again to try to scare people from changing into something new. Every time something new comes along, it it becomes a, a challenge to us. And here's the point of all of this. Throughout history, this has happened with many, many different things. This is just one example. Some things changed and some things didn't. And that's what I want to zero in on this morning before we get into our passage. Some things changed and some things did not. What changed were the hows and the whats. The how and the what. Those changed over time. What did not change was the why. Communication has always been about doing three things as effectively as possible. Inform, persuade, and entertain. And those whys of communication have not changed, even though our hows and our what's have changed considerably. So here's what I would like us to think about today. I want us to examine our why, our how, and our what. Why? The reason we do something. Our purpose. How? How? The way we do something, our methodology, our approach, and what, the actions we actually do. And you may recognize this format because a man named Simon Sinek, not long ago, uh, did a TED Talk and then had a book called Start With Why, talks about the golden circle, and he uses these three words. But I want to tell you that this concept is nothing new. In fact, it is written about in the Bible 2,000 years ago. And we're going to go there today and see where this concept of a why, a how, and a what, and what to do with those things and how they intersect with each other was written about by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to explore that together. As we read through our text today, I want you to look for the whys, the hows, and the whats. And point them out as we go through. Maybe circle them or something. Because I think that they will help us to understand the flow of thought for the Apostle Paul, to understand why he did what he did the way he did it, and then take that and apply it to us today and say, how can we learn from this to better follow Jesus, given the whys that we have, the methodology, the approach that we wanna have, and the things that we actually do? Before we open God's word, let's just pray together. Would you bow with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it teaches us. Lord, too often we have gotten so caught up in the everyday activities of this life, the busyness, the things that we do with jobs and kids and school and all this other stuff, that we don't step back to ask why and to seek your wisdom and your will and your purpose for us. So help us to do that this morning, God. Help us as we dive into your word, Lord. Teach us, illuminate it to us, help us to apply it. And in your name we pray, amen. Well, would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're gonna start in verse 19. The apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church for a couple of different reasons. One was that he wanted to correct some wrong thinking and wrong behavior. They had some wrong thoughts, some wrong actions, and he wanted to correct that. But also to correct a misconception that some of them had about why he did the things he did. And when you get to 1 Corinthians 9, this whole chapter is actually about correcting those misperceptions. See, some people in Corinth thought that the reason for Paul's ministry activities was personal gain. The reason he did what he did, it's so that he could get money, it's so that he could get resources, it's so that he could build his network He was trying to build a following. In fact, at one point in Paul's life, while he's in jail, there are actually some leaders who Paul says were doing just that because he was in jail. They realized, aha, Paul is in captivity. No one's going to be able to follow him right now, so we're going to go take his following from him. And they actually did that with that motivation. But Paul is going to respond to this kind of an accusation and try to explain why, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being paid to be a minister of the gospel. In fact, he says in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says Jesus himself instituted that as a practice, that those who preach the gospel as a, as a way of life and vocation ought to earn their living from the gospel. That was a normal thing. But Paul's going to say, I, I generally reject those kinds of payments just because I want to avoid this whole confusion. And let me tell you now, once we get to verse 19, he says, let me tell you the real reason why I do what I do. Yes, it's totally legitimate to be paid for serving God and the gospel and and all of that, but let me tell you the real reason, the why behind the hows and the whats of my life and work. And so we come to 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And remember what I want you to do as we go through this. Pay attention to the whys, the hows, and the whats. Let's read together. Even though... I am a free man with no master. I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. Now we're going to look for some wise how's, and what's. He says, I have become a slave to all people. That's how I live my life. It's my methodology. It's my approach. It's not specifically what I do, but it's the general approach that I bring to any situation. I'm thinking, I am a slave to all people. This is how I approach it. And then you see two why. Why does he do it? To bring many to Christ. That's my why. That's my reason. This is sort of his thesis in a nutshell that he's going to unpack for us in a minute. But he starts off by telling us that he is a free man. He has no master. I have become a slave to all people, he says, to bring many to Christ. Paul was no slave. He's a free man. He has no master. In fact, we can even take it further than that. Not only was he not a slave, Paul was a Roman citizen. That means he had a privileged status in the ancient world. He had protections and advantages that most people did not have. In fact, when Paul was imprisoned in Philippi without a trial, and the leaders there found out that they had imprisoned a Roman citizen without a trial, they freaked out. And they said, what have we done? This guy's a Roman citizen. We're going to lose our heads because we imprisoned him without a trial. You see, it was very advantageous to be a Roman citizen. He had special privileges and and protections because of that. Paul was a free man. He was no man's slave. He had no reason to serve anyone else. In fact, Paul had an incredible upbringing, a a tremendous upbringing, the, the best education you could get for his industry, the highest level. He talks about that elsewhere in the New Testament. The, the best way for us to kind of relate to this, I think, would be to imagine someone who was born into a very wealthy family. You might say they were born with a, a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, and they, they grew up with a, with a tremendous trust fund, and they're very well connected politically and uh, in, in business connections, and they just have everything going for them. They have all kinds of privilege. And that's sort of like where the apostle Paul was coming from with his upbringing. He was very privileged in a lot of his status and yet what does he say? I have become a slave. He has all this privilege and yet he becomes a slave. He lowers himself to the level of a slave. That word slave is very interesting in Paul's day because it's not just the idea of someone owning you and you having to do what they say. The word slave in Paul's day includes an idea of Social death. Social death. Now, social death is not what happens when someone blocks you on Instagram or Facebook. This was way more serious than that. For a slave or a bond servant, as they were sometimes called, in the time of Paul, it meant giving up personal identity, wants, desires, preferences, traditions, and cultural norms, and taking on those of the master. It meant becoming a surrogate, for the master. No longer could you pursue your own wealth and ambitions and stability. Your job was now to pursue the wealth and ambitions and stability of your master. To be a slave was to be like an ambassador, only where you are totally subservient to your master. They literally own you, and you literally represent them and work for them. It's a complete loss of individual identity. It's called social death. And this is the lens through which Paul views his relationships. Paul is not just an ambassador for God, although he is that. Paul is not just a worker for God, although he is that. He's not just a messenger for God, although he is that. He is a slave. But notice here who he says he's a slave to. Is it to God It's to all people. Back in chapter 4, Paul does say that he's a slave to Christ, but here he says, I have become a slave to all people. That's really significant. Because as a slave, as a slave to God, Paul's wants, desires, preferences, traditions, cultural norms, all of that is secondary to God and God's will for him. But get this, what Paul is saying here is critical. As a slave to all people... Paul's wants, desires, preferences, traditions, and cultural norms were all secondary to other people. It means he's willing to change all of those things and adapt them for the sake of others. In missions, we call this concept contextualization. And contextualization is a broad term with lots of different meanings involved, but one aspect of it is that we evaluate what we do Reduce it down to the core of what's really important so that we can then transfer that, translate that into another culture to make it relevant to them. What is the message we're taking with us? What is the real purpose behind why we're going? What's the why that we're bringing around the world? It's not the clothes we wear or the music style that we prefer or the type of building that we meet in or the food that we eat or the order of our service or the elements that we include in it. All of those things are adaptable in different ways so that our wants, desires, preferences, traditions, and cultural norms are secondary to the people that we're serving, that are around us as missionaries. We're going there to share the gospel, not try to impose our cultural norms on them. We're trying to bring the core of our message, the why, into their world, into their context. It's one of the reasons why church does so well in different cultures around the world because the why is so much deeper, so much stronger than all those extra things that we package around it. Ministry looks different in place to place, even in this country. Daily living for Christians looks different in different places and around the world, and that's okay because the why is what transcends those things, even when the hows and the what's change. One of the missionaries that I've worked with was in China for many years and a supporter came over to visit him. And they decided to put this visitor in the main bedroom because it was the, the coolest room in the house. I don't mean like it was awesome. I mean it was cooler than the rest of the house because it was hot and the sun was baking down. It was actually, it was actually better and more comfortable to go outside than it was to stay indoors because the, the house was like an oven. So they put this visitor in the main bedroom of the house and one day, even though he's in the coldest room in the house, he walks out of his bedroom, sweat dripping from his face. And he said, can we just go get you an air conditioner? In fact, I've seen your budget. You can definitely afford it. We'll just go get you an air conditioner right now. I'll take care of it. Let's just make this thing happen. Come on, let's go. And the missionary looked at him and said, no. He said, look around at our neighbors. Do any of them have Air conditioning? Not one. They can't afford it. We're not going to be that missionary from the United States that comes over and brings all of our comforts from home with us, all of our preferences, all of our cultural norms, all the traditions that we like, all the stuff that we like to do and and parades that in front of them. You know what they do when it's too hot inside? They go out and they talk and they play. And we're going to do the same thing because we're going to put our Preferences, wants, desires, cultural norms, traditions as secondary to them. They were being a slave to others around them. And that's what Paul did. He sacrificed his preferential what's for the sake of his why. Zane Pratt is the vice president of global training for the International Mission Board. He wrote about contextualization for churches, and he wrote a bit for people like us in this country who are learning about contextualization and what it means for us. And I just want to read a portion of what he said. He said, American Christians tend to think of contextualization as something missionaries do over there. And many serious Christians in the Western world actually worry about how far non-Western churches go in their contextualization efforts. But in reality, Every Christian alive today is actively involved in contextualization. Every American Christian worships in a contextualized church. The question is not whether or not we are going to contextualize. In countless ways, whether in North America or South Asia, every believer alive contextualizes the gospel and the church to their own culture. Since none of us are first century Palestinian Jews. Newsflash, none of us our first century Palestinian Jews. It's going to look different between them and us. And so he says the question facing every believer and church, therefore, is whether or not they will contextualize well. Anyone who fails to realize they are doing contextualization fails to think through it carefully and biblically and simply guarantees they will contextualize poorly. Another way to say this is that 2,000 years ago, what the practices of the church looked like I'm not talking about the I'm not talking about the uh, the idea of communion or baptism I'm not talking about some of the belief issues I mean the the what's and the hows. some of the activities of how they function as a church what that looked like was different 2,000 years ago than today what the average church service looked like 2,000 years ago was a whole lot different than what we're doing right now they didn't have a big building like this to meet in that was purpose-built for this kind of functionality. I don't think they had special communion trays with the lids and the layers and all this stuff. I don't think they had little plastic cups to put stuff in. They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have cell phones or computers or screens or the same types of instruments that we have. It looked very different than what we have today, and that's okay. That's all right. Because our faith is much deeper than just the actions that we do. The what's and the how's of church should be caused by the whys. Neither of those settings are wrong. Neither of those contexts are wrong. They're just different. And failing to recognize that guarantees that we will lose track of our why and focus too much on the what's and the how's of how we do life as a Christian and how we do church. Even if the context around us should be telling us that maybe we should do things a little differently. So what did this look like for the Apostle Paul? What did he do to live out this idea that he needed to contextualize his ministry, that he needed to treat his preferences and desires and traditions and cultural norms as secondary to other people? What did that look like for him? Well, he's gonna tell us. He's gonna unpack it for us. Again, look for the whys, the hows, and the what's here. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew. That's what I did. Why? To bring the Jews to Christ. That's why I did it. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this. There's a what. So I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. That's why I did it. That's the whole purpose for this. When I am with the Gentiles, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law. It's what I do. So I can bring them to Christ. That's why I do it. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. That's what I do. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. That's what I do when I'm around them. For I want to bring the weak, to Christ. That's why I do it. I change my operation here. I change what I'm doing because I want to reach them for Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. That's how I function. That's my methodology. That's my approach. That's how I go about living. I try to find common ground with everyone, even as I'm doing different things, doing everything, lots of different things, lots of different ways to function. That's what I do. I can To save some. That's why I do it. That's the purpose behind this. That's not changing. But the what is changing along the way. I do everything, lots of different things. That's what I'm doing to spread the good news and share in its blessings. That's why I do it. Paul knew his why, and that why influenced his how. And the how resulted in his what. You see that? The why is central. The why is core. The why is first. And that influences how we do it and ultimately results in what we actually do. Let me show it to you this way. What is Paul's what? It's the actions that he's doing in these different contexts. He's adapting. He's, he's conforming to them in some ways, not in ways that are compromising his morality or his theology or his, or his spiritual life, but in the secondary things, in the actions, in the, in the clothes, in the way he operates, the way he speaks, what he spends his time doing, he's modifying that to better reach the culture, the context that he's in. His how, become a slave to all people. This is my approach, guys. This is my methodology. The stuff that I was used to doing back there in Jerusalem, well, now that I'm here in Rome, I'm going to do it differently. Now that I'm in Corinth, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm over here in Ephesus, I'm going to do it a little bit differently because my desires wants preferences norms those are all secondary to others around me i've made myself a slave to them and what's his why to bring many to christ paul knew his why it influenced his how and it resulted in his what in that order of importance so let me ask a question so what why does this matter Why are we talking about this today? See, here's the problem that you and I face usually without even realizing it. Sometimes we get so caught up in our how and our what that we lose sight of our why. Is that true? Sometimes we get so caught up in our hows and our what's that we lose sight of the why. There was a woman once was making a pot roast and she took the roast and she cut off the end of it and she stuck it in her pot put it in the oven set it her little daughter watched all this and said mommy why do you cut off the end of the roast before you put it in the oven her mom thought about it for a minute and said i don't know that's just what my mom taught me to do so they went over to grandma's house and they asked grandma grandma why do we cut the end of the pot of the roast off before we put it in the pot and put it in the oven And grandma said, I don't know. That's just the way my mother taught me to do it. So they all got together and went to great-grandmother's house and they asked the same question. Great-grandmother, why do we all cut off the end of the roast before we put it in the pot to put it in the oven? And great-grandmother had a good laugh and said, I always cut off the end of the roast because my pot was too small. Sometimes we get so caught up in our how and our what that we lose sight of our why why are we doing this why do we do this stuff why are we sitting here why are you all listening to me why do we read god's word why do we why do we do any of this stuff this is especially dangerous for churches and i'll show you why there's a life cycle that churches can often get into and it's not a great one but here's how it typically works When a new church starts out, a new church tends to have a laser-sharp focus on their mission. They know what they're here to do. So a new church is planted in a new community. We're going to reach that community for Christ, and we're going to go out there. And you know the best, most effective evangelism that happens in a church? It happens in the first two years of the church. You might think that once the church grows to be 3,000 people that they have a better evangelistic witness. Nope. It's usually those 50 people in the first two years of the church. There's excitement. We know why we're here. All these other things, we're not going to let them worry us. We're not dividing over preferences and traditions and things like that. We are here for the mission. We're going to go out and make disciples and grow those disciples and add those to the kingdom for God. And so churches start out with a clear understanding of their mission. And then the next stage of this is that they start to realize, well, we got to develop some processes around this. we got to standardize this. we got to come up with some ways to do this normally and train other people to do this. And so they do a good thing, which is they develop all kinds of ministries, activities and processes to accomplish the mission better. And that's not a bad thing. But here's where it starts to become a problem. Over time, if those ministries... Those activities, those processes do not adapt, do not change, do not better reflect the culture that they are in, do not contextualize. Here's what happens. They go into maintenance mode. And you just keep doing the things we were doing because it's what we did before. We don't entirely know if it's still accomplishing the why as well as it did, but this is just the way it is. We just keep going. And eventually, maintenance mode turns ministries and churches into monuments to the past. This is precisely what happened in Europe, much of Europe. Churches that were once thriving and dynamic faced a choice when they reached a time where young people were no longer interested in coming to their churches. We either cling to the way we've always done it, the maintenance that we've been doing of the the things that we do, or we adapt and change things to try to incorporate and include younger people into our church. And by and large, they made the decision to continue what they had been doing. And at first, no one noticed that younger people just were not coming to their churches. For a while, it was fine because the people who had always been there are still there. And they keep coming and they keep going and they keep doing these things. But then, all of a sudden, you fast forward a couple of decades and those people are no longer in the church. Some of them are gone now. And there aren't new people to replace them. Why? Because the hows and the whats took priority over the why. And the goal was no longer to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, make disciples, and grow those disciples. The goal became do church the way I like it, do church the way we've done it before. And they held on to the hows and the whats. So I'll ask it again. So what? Why are we starting this new series? What's this all about? This is just an introduction. Over the next eight weeks, we are going to look at a number of topics. And really what we're trying to do is get back to the basics. We want to evaluate our why about some things. Why do we do some of the things that we do? Are there good reasons for that? We want to make sure we understand those reasons for the things that we do as individual followers of God and as a church. Do we have good reasons? We want to evaluate what are the best ways to accomplish the why in this context that we find ourselves in? Should we be doing some things differently? Should we maybe not do some things that are distracting from our main purpose? Should we maybe bring some things back that we did before and don't do now, but that actually do accomplish the why? All of that stuff is part of the conversation. We want to have that conversation, many conversations in our groups, in our families, at the dinner table, in ministries. We want to talk about, are we doing the best job we can do so that our what's and our how's reflect our why? Are they really accomplishing the purpose To fulfill our mission right now in this context now of course we're not going to be able to address every possible thing that we do or every issue so a few months ago we sat down and prayed about the coming year and the messages and we identified eight key areas that we felt were important for us to touch on here they are these are all on the website this is what we're going to talk about and on the website you'll see uh, when these different topics will be discussed why do we follow jesus why follow jesus Why do we go to church? Why do we worship God together and and individually? What's so important about community? Why do we need community? Why Why should we be involved in a group? Why do we have small groups and adult communities here? Why is that important? Why should we obey? Why give? Why give money to the church? Why love? What's so important about that? Why serve? Why is it important for me to be actively involved in serving in the body of Christ? What does that look like? We want to go back to the basics here. We want to evaluate what is behind all these things that we do so that we're not just asking you to serve in Kid Connection, for example, but that we're communicating, as was done this morning, why it's important, making a difference in these kids' lives. We want to talk about the whys behind everything we do. And there are just two things that I'll ask you to do during this series. Number one is to take some time over the next couple of months to prayerfully evaluate your whys, hows, and what's? Are the things that you're doing accurately reflecting and representing the why's that you know you should have? Or are there some what's that maybe you need to remove or add to better reflect and represent your why's? What about us as a church? Prayerfully evaluate and think about, are there some things that we should be doing or shouldn't be doing or need to change to better accomplish the whys that we have? Let's be about what we really want to fulfill, the purpose, the mission. Not just about doing things because it's what we've always done. And the second thing I would ask you to do is think if there is someone who you might want to invite to one of the messages in this series. Maybe someone who does not go to church but has been wrestling with one of these topics wrestling with who is Jesus, wrestling with why do people go to church? Why does the church even exist, that relic from the past? We don't need that anymore. Why should we worship? Why is there community? Why obey? Why would we obey a book that was written thousands of years ago? Why would we do that? And you probably know people who are wrestling with some of those questions. This is a great opportunity for you to invite them to be a part of this, to come listen and just hear us out. Hear the reasons, the why why we do some of the things that we do. What we'll learn together is that we have some really good reasons, but we don't always reflect those in everything we do. And that's what this series is all about. Making sure that the what's and the how's that we do are representing a God-honoring, biblical, well-thought-out why, the purpose that's behind it all. And I hope you'll join us every single week I think it's going to be a great series. Let's pray for it right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, in your word, you've communicated the why to us. You've given us some great, great things to follow and do. And you've allowed for a lot of adaptation in that. And Lord, I confess that sometimes I get caught up just doing the same thing again and again. It's like I'm on autopilot and I forget that there's a reason behind all of this. Help us to live with intention, Lord. Help us to live understanding the purpose, the why behind what we do. Help us over these next couple of months to evaluate why we do the things we do and to make sure that we really have good reasons. Not only for us as individuals, but for us as a church, Lord. Help us to reflect and evaluate whether or not what we do and what we don't do best represents what you have for us and the why, the purpose that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.